Welcome to the Siskiyou Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. We go through it verse-by-verse and chapter-by-chapter, book-by-book, so we could study it, so that we would know it, so that we could hide it in our hearts. Uh, It's just super important. So uh, grab your Bibles and flip them open to Psalm 79. And really, we're just going to jump in this morning. We're just going to go for it. So Psalm 79, starting in verse 1. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. Your holy temple they have defiled. They have laid Jerusalem in heaps. The dead bodies of your servants they have given as food for the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth. Their blood have shed like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and a derision to those who are around us. How long, Lord? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call in your name, for they have devoured Jacob and have laid waste his dwelling place. I just wanted to, to read something really encouraging to start the morning out. <laughs> but you know, that's sometimes that's just where we, we're at, you know, and that's what's going on. We're in this section. Uh, you know, where Asaph, he's the writer of this psalm, that's kind of been the theme through the last few uh, psalms, is the destruction of Israel. And this psalm deals specifically with the destruction of Jerusalem, the holy city. There in 586 BC, when the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem. And it was a devastating time. I mean, you can tell by the description, it's just carnage. It was terrible. The temple was defiled. Uh, the temple there, the most holy site, the, the center of Jewish life, it was overrun by Gentiles. And as the Babylonians came in, they were ripping the gold off of the walls. They, they robbed the, the sanctuary. They robbed the temple of anything that was of value. And, and then they just utterly and completely laid waste. They just destroyed it. Uh, Jerusalem laid in heaps. It was just in absolute ruins. They, they took down all the, the, the defenses and the walls and they just destroyed it completely to where it was just a heap of rubble. The blood flowed like water throughout the whole city. Not only did the Babylonians come in and completely annihilate all the infrastructure, but they also came in and laid waste to the inhabitants of the city. So much so that the psalmist says, man, the blood flowed like water. It was just everywhere. And the dead bodies, there were so many dead bodies that were just left out in the open air to decompose. The birds were coming and they were pecking at them. There were scavengers dragging bodies off. And there were so many bodies and there was nobody to even bury them. Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, he, he records that there were so many bodies that they were throwing them over the city walls by the tens of thousands. What a gruesome uh, description this morning. And, and really, it's beyond our imagination. Unless you are a, an individual who has been in combat, I don't think we can even comprehend just the, the brutality of what's being described uh, in these first few verses. And not only were they absolutely devastated, their infrastructure, their temple, their society, their lives, but then the nations round about them, boy, they were mocking them. 
they, they, they were ridiculing them. They shook their heads and said, well, you were supposed to be the people who belong to God. Uh, where is your God now? What have you done that your God would forsake you? And so they had to deal with that as well. And so in the midst of this absolute destruction, the psalmist is just crying out to the Lord and saying, God, remember that we are your people, that this is your temple, that this is your city. Those first few verses, the psalmist really uses, uh, you know, this very personal uh, word, your, your holy temple. Uh, it's your inheritance. They have laid waste to Jerusalem. Uh, you know, the Jews were God's people, his inheritance. They were a covenant people. And the psalmist here is saying, Lord, we belong to you. How could you do this to us? We are your covenant people. You, you, you made that promise to Abraham. And now we're in this dire situation. Lord, your temple, it's the place of worship. It's where we come to offer sacrifices to atone for our sin. It's the center of our lives. But the most important thing about the temple was that's where God's presence was. It was his dwelling place. It's where he resided on earth. It's where they could go to meet with God. And so he's crying out, Lord, your temple is destroyed. Remember there at the end of Exodus, uh, the, the, the spirit of God filled the tabernacle, the Shekinah glory of God. There's the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of smoke by day. It's God's presence after Solomon dedicated the temple a little bit later when they were in the promised land. Uh, again, God's presence, his spirit, boom, it fell on the temple and his presence was there. And so now they're saying, Lord, how could you let this happen to your dwelling place, to where we come and meet with you? Now that's been obliterated. And Jerusalem, Lord, this is your holy city. Psalm 48 calls Jerusalem the city of God. That is his holy mountain. Hebrews 11 speaks of Jerusalem that God is its builder and uh, its maker. And so the psalmist was devastated. And he really shares the heart of Jerusalem there as a whole. And he says, God, how long? How long is this going to go on? How long are you going to be angry and jealous forever? Is this going to be forever, Lord? Why is this happening? And this carnage, this situation, man, it was so difficult for the people of Israel and Jerusalem to understand. Again, they could not understand why it is that the Lord would allow this just difficulty and carnage into their life. If they were his people, and this was his city, and that was his temple, how is it even possible that the enemy could come in and do this sort of thing? And to be honest, that really is the kind of thinking that got them into the situation that they're in now in the first place. You see, that, that question that the psalmist has, Lord, why is this happening? Lord, how long is this going to take place? How long is this, this difficulty going to last? There are answers to those questions. We know that this is happening to Israel because they had turned their backs on God. They had turned their backs on God and they had run hard after sin, putting any thought of consequence completely out of their mind. Uh, they had bought into the lie that the false prophets of their day were spewing that, hey, you're God's people. You belong to Abraham. You have the temple. You have the Ark of the Covenant. There's nothing that can happen to you. And so they bought into this lie that because of their heritage, that they were untouchable. But Jeremiah was a true prophet in their day. 
And Jeremiah told him the truth. Check out what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 23. He said, uh, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord says, you will have peace. And to all who follow the stubbornness of their heart, they say, no harm will come to you. See, there was false prophets as Israel was just diving headlong into idolatry. And this was no just dabbling in a little bit of this or that, which would be bad enough, but they were full on. They were worshiping false idols and false gods, and they were involved in all of the wicked worship that went along with that. And so these false prophets are saying, hey, I know you're involved in all of this gross immorality, but it's all right. You're God's people. Everything's going to be just fine. And Jeremiah comes along and says, I wouldn't listen to them if I were you. I'd be careful taking their advice. And Jeremiah warned them about the dangers and the direction that they were headed in. And you know what happened to Jeremiah? He was discredited. He was disregarded. And he was labeled as a traitor. He was the only one who was proclaiming the actual truth, but they were so steeped in their sin that the truth seemed like the wrong thing. Sound familiar? Boy, we live in a world that's very much the same. As we go to proclaim the truth, people say, are you crazy? Say, no, I, I'm just in tune with God's word and what he says. And like Jeremiah, don't give up on proclaiming the truth because the world will want to shut you down and shut you up and discredit you. But be faithful in being the salt and the light. I admire Jeremiah for those attributes. Uh, but the people, man, they, they, they really did what they wanted to do. They did what they wanted to do, and they used the message of the false prophets to ease their guilty conscience. And that is so easy for us to do. That's such an easy thing to slide into. When we're walking contrary to the precepts of the Lord, when we know that we're not really walking in God's will. It's so easy for us to surround ourselves with people who will agree with us, who will prop up our bad decisions, who will cheer us on. And as a pastor, I can tell you, I have watched it happen over and over and over again, where people build their own little army. They get their own little echo chamber of people that will tell them, hey, what's your, it's gonna be all right. It's not a big deal. God loves you. Everything's going to be okay. Hey, be careful not to surround yourself with people who tell you what you want to hear, but with people who tell you what you need to hear. See, we live in a day and age that says, you know, love is agreeing with whatever sort of uh, wickedness you want to do in your life. I'm just going to agree with that because I love you. But love is saying the difficult thing in a loving way, but it's saying the difficult thing. Uh, be careful not to surround yourself with yes men when you're in those seasons of your life. Also, the other side of that coin, it's very tempting to, to really walk in the way of the false prophet. When you have somebody that you love who's in a bad situation, maybe they're in an abusive marriage, but they really don't meet the biblical qualifications for divorce. It's very tempting to say, well, you know, the Lord wants you to be happy. So I understand it's really not biblical grounds for divorce, but you know, God understands. And be careful not to give people uh, that false uh, sense of surety when they're walking in sin. Because as we're going to talk about, man, sin is a dangerous thing. See, sin equals sorrow. All of the sorrow 
all of the carnage, all of the wreckage that we see taking place in Jerusalem in our story, these first few verses, it's all the result of sin. All of it. The, the, the temple, the city, it, it's all because of sin. And these few verses really describe, it's a picture of what sin does in our own lives. You know, uh, these first few verses, it, it starts out by talking about, you know, the, the temple. And, and the, the temple has been defiled. You know, again, what made the temple special? It was God's presence. It's that God's presence was there in the temple. And it was defiled. It was destroyed. And when that temple was defiled and destroyed, there was this separation. There was no longer uh, this place where they could go to meet with God. Their fellowship with God was severed when the temple was destroyed. Now, do you know that 1 Corinthians tells us that our bodies are the temple of God? It's very interesting, the correlation, because when we defile our temples, when we walk in purposeful sin as Christians, do you know what happens? Boy, we forsake fellowship with the Lord. See, that's the thing that stands in between us and God, is sin. And we walk in purposeful sin. There's this separation now, I'm not saying that God will forsake you. He's promised to never leave you or forsake you. He doesn't love you because you're not a sinner. In fact, he died for you while you were still in your sin. But what you have to know is that fellowship that you enjoy with the Lord is greatly hindered by your sin. And that's why the Bible tells us in Ephesians 4.30 that we're not to uh, grieve the Holy Spirit. We're not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Man, because it breaks that fellowship with us. And so as we see this description of the temple being destroyed and defiled and fellowship being broken, that's exactly what sin does to us. It breaks fellowship with the Lord. We also see just death. We see carnage. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is what? It's death. They experience death physically. We experience death physically because of sin. So often, uh, you know, when we engage in sinful activities, those things lead to death. Promiscuous activity, drug and alcohol abuse. These things take a toll on our body and they literally kill us. They, they, sin brings uh, death, not just physically, but also relationally. Oftentimes, relationships die because of sin. Financially, oftentimes our finances can be in the toilet because of sin. But what Romans really was speaking of there in Romans 6.23, when it says that the wages of sin is death, it speaks spiritually. It speaks of spiritual death. And it's eternal death. The wages of sin is, is death. And we see that picture painted for us so clearly in this description of what was taking place in Jerusalem. And then lastly, sin devours. It devours our lives. You see, sin is never satisfied. There's never a time when you can just dabble in sin and you're just going to cap it. I'm just going to leave it there. Sin has this effect on us where it always desires more and more and more. It's never enough. It devours our life until there is nothing left. It's this carrot that sin is always leaving us chasing. And that's why in the scripture we see that leprosy is a picture of sin. Leprosy, this ancient skin disease, really a, a nerve disease, would start very small. Uh, very easy to hide, very easy to conceal, almost completely unnoticeable. But what would happen is, is that disease would grow. And as it advanced, the, the fingers and the extremities would become uh, numb. They would lose sensitivity. So much so that as you just went about life, you would bang yourself up. 
And as you wounded yourself because you couldn't really feel it, those wounds would get infected. And before long, you would have extremities just kind of rotting off. It would affect your face and your nose would rot away and your ears would slide off of your head and it probably wouldn't slide right off. They would probably just kind of melt away. But, you know, your teeth would fall out, your palate, your hair. You would become unrecognizable. It would be just devastating physically. But one of the worst aspects of leprosy in those days would be that you were completely separated from everybody and everything that you loved. You would be banished. You'd be a pariah. You'd be an outcast. You would have to live in a leper colony. And sin does those things. Man, sin starts just so small, just as an idea. Uh, it's been said that sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. It starts small, but as you follow that out, man, it grows and it, and it grows and it starts small and easy to conceal. But if you continue down the path of sin, eventually it just blows up and it numbs our conscience. It, 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 it makes our hearts calloused and numb to the Lord to the point to where we can't really sense the Lord's presence anymore. And maybe you're a Christian here this morning and you've been slowly but surely dabbling in sin. See, that's the thing is when you first sin as a Christian, when you dive into something that you know, it's like, man, I shouldn't have done that. There's this conviction that comes over us. But the longer you walk in that, the more your conscience is seared. And pretty soon, man, the Lord is knocking on the heart, door of your heart, and you can't even sense it anymore. It's a very dangerous thing. Sin, it changes us for the worst. And it makes us unrecognizable like leprosy. There's been times in my life where I've been sucked into sin and I look myself in the mirror and I say, I don't even recognize you anymore. It just changes who we are for the worst and it separates us from everything that we love. Sin is so terrible. It's pictured here for us in this description and this carnage. And you know, maybe you're here this morning and say, come on, Pastor Jeremy, aren't you being a little bit dramatic? Really? You want through all of this just to kind of describe how bad sin is? But that voice, that idea that really you're just making a mountain out of a molehill, that's exactly what the voice of the prophets would say. That's exactly what Satan would say. That's the attitude that we have adopted in our culture. What's the big deal? A little sin here, a little sin here. It really isn't that big of a deal, is it? Who cares if I get buzzed in the privacy of my own home? Who cares if I cheat on my taxes? I fudge it a little bit. The government, they're, they're just a bunch of crooks anyways. And the government, they are a bunch of crooks. I got to be honest with you. But that doesn't give you the right to cheat on your taxes. Render unto Caesar. What is Caesar's? What difference does it make, we tell ourselves, if we sleep together before we're married, we love each other anyways. I tell you what, I've heard that one way too many times. But we rationalize and we make excuses. And then we surround ourselves with people who will agree with us. Because we don't see sin for what it really is. We don't recognize it as the carnage that's described here. See, we've become so accustomed to sin, we're so steeped in it in our culture, that we don't recognize its stench anymore. And we say, oh, what's the big deal? I was camping with my family a few years ago. We were over on Harris Beach there outside of Brookings, a sweet little campground. And, uh, you know, 
we had all of our stuff set up. And, and this was the year I was like, I'm going to make our camp kitchen epic. We're going to whoop up some good food in there. And, and, you know, we had our chair set up and our tent and all of our things. And we got this big screened in room to go over the picnic table and all of our stuff was in there. And, you know, we got a little border collie that we'd bring camping with us. And, and we thought one night, you know what, we'll just tie the border collie to the, the screened in porch while we're sleeping. And she'll just stay right there. No big deal. So while we're sleeping, you know, two o'clock in the morning, you hear that commotion out in our camp. Everything's crashing to you. The dog's barking and freaking out. I jump up and I almost tip the tent over trying to get out. And as I open the tent, immediately what punches me in the face is the smell of skunk. Like when you smell a skunk that has been run over, you're like, oh yeah, there's a skunk. This is a whole different sort of skunk smell. I'm telling you what. There's a reason that that is a defense mechanism. It's, oh my goodness. And so we just kind of tried to sleep through the night. It was so bad, I felt like it gave me a sore throat. It stank so bad. I'm not even kidding. But the next morning, we woke up and we're just walking around like, <laughs> sniffing everything. That's got to go. That's okay. That's got to go. And so we kind of just got rid of everything. We took showers and we're like, all right. Do you smell skunk? I don't smell skunk. Do you smell skunk? I don't. Like, we're in the clear. So we camped for another day or two or whatever it was. And on our way out, we're like, hey, let's go to Pig and Pancake and we'll get some breakfast before we head out. And so we go and we sit down. It's just like the movie, we sit down and everybody's like, whoosh. They complete, because we still smelled like skunk. The problem was we had grown accustomed to our own stench. And see, that's our culture. And that's why we say, oh, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Because we've lost touch with how disgusting sin really is. But he, see, here's the thing. God has not lost touch with how gross sin is. We may not see sin for what it is, but God, he does. And that's why he warns us. See, God is not some cosmic killjoy sitting up on a cloud saying, you better not do that because that's way too fun. No, he, he loves us. See, sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. We have a loving father who says, hey, be careful. If you go down that path, if you engage in that activity, if you go over here, there are consequences for that. Sorrow and hurt and pain and death. And I don't want my children to experience that. And so he warns us to be careful because he doesn't want to see us ruined. Because see, here's the thing about sin. It seems so freeing, doesn't it? It seems so liberating. It seems so exciting. It seems so fun. And you know what it is? Now, before you leave, <laughs> and I hope you would leave if I left it there. See, sin is fun for a season. It is. If sin wasn't fun, it wouldn't be tempting. If sinning was like getting punched in the face or slamming your fingers in the car door, I'd be, I don't sin ever. It's because it's terrible. But see, our carnal nature desires sin, but it's only fun for a season. And once we engage, boy, it's just like fishing, and that hook is buried in there, and all of a sudden, we're hooked. And so the Lord warns us, he says, be careful. I love you. I don't want you to deal with the consequences of, of sin and rebellion, because it's fun for a season, but its end is death. And that's what Israel was dealing with. And they were reeling. Their world had been flipped upside down, their future was a smoldering pile of ash, and it seemed like things would never get better. 
And that's what the psalmist was saying. Lord, how long? Things are never going to get, I don't have anything anymore. It's gone. It's toast. It's destroyed. And we feel that way sometimes when we're going through. Like, Lord, I don't even have anything. I've been stripped bare. Yesterday, I was out at Walmart with my family just getting a couple groceries. And as we're leaving, there's this table that has uh, little little, uh, balloon animals on there. And you could get a balloon animal for a donation to the Children's Miracle Network. Now, this is not a story about your pastor's generosity because I actually stole the balloon at first, not realizing that it was a donation-based situation. And then after I took the balloon and gave it to my son, there was the guys like, oh, we're accepting donations for that. I was like, oh, no. I, I don't ever carry cash. I literally had 26 cents in my I had a, a quarter and a penny. And ashamedly, I was like, oh, now I'm in a pickle. The boy's got the balloon. The guy needs it. I was like, would you take 26 cents? He's, and he let me off the hook. He was such a gracious. He said, yeah, no problem, no problem. So we get in the car, and, you know, there's that squeaking noise that only a balloon animal can make. And I hear it in the back. It's just getting louder and louder. And I'm like, buddy, you know, be careful. That thing's going to pop. It pops. And then the tears begin to flow. Oh, Dad. And I looked in the rearview mirror, and lo and behold, his balloon animal had only lost air out of one little puppy leg. And so I was like, son, just, you know, I'm thinking, all right, here we go. Teachable moments, Pastor Dad, you know. Buddy, look on the bright side, right? Uh, be grateful for what you do have. At least the whole balloon didn't, boom, and just when I said that, it was literally like a cartoon. It was around the car. My wife starts cracking up. My son is just bawling. And that's a very light-hearted story about the truth that we can feel Man, like we've been stripped back of nothing. And that's what he was doing. Oh, I've got nothing now, Dad, nothing. And we can feel that way. And so how long was this going to go on? That was their thing. Lord, how long are we going to be stripped bare? And we have the answer to that question. Uh, we know that they would be in Babylon for 70 years. I say, man, 70 years, that's a long time. What a bummer. But here's the thing about that 70 years. The Lord did a work in their hearts during those 70 years. You see, the the sin that so easily beset Israel, the thing that tripped them up, that held them back for century after century after century, idolatry. The Lord worked that out of their heart while they were in Babylon. He, He took that devastating situation and he brought about good because the Lord is always at work. And I want to encourage you in that this morning, that if you're going through it, even if it's by your own doing, even if it's because you've been foolish. Man, the Lord is at work even in those things as well. And even in the midst of our greatest tragedies, even in the midst of our greatest trials, God can bring about good into our lives. I talk about that all the time. But that idea of the Lord working these difficulties for good, we do play a role in that. You see, the Lord desires to use those things for good in our life. But we can stand in his way. You see, when tragedy strikes, when we're dealing with hardship, we have the choice to be bitter or to allow the Lord to make us better. We can be bitter. We can, we can focus on the negative. We can blame everyone and everything else. We can shake our fist at God and say, how could you? We can shut everyone out. We can shut down ourselves and we can choose to stay broken. And the Lord will allow you to stay broken if you really, really want to. Or we can choose to allow the Lord to make us better. 
We can choose to trust the Lord. And here's the thing. I understand it's difficult when the storm is raging to trust the Lord because we don't oftentimes understand. But the good news is you don't have to understand to trust and never forget that. We can choose to walk in forgiveness. We can choose to walk in thanksgiving. We can learn to grow and we can learn to change because God is working all things together for good. For those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. See, to love God, it it means that we trust the Lord. To love is to trust. And to be called according to his purpose has the idea of being surrendered, of belonging to. So the Lord is working all things together for good. But allow him in your life. Sometimes we just want to be a grump and say, all right, you're working things together for good, but I'm going to do everything I can to just be better. And the Lord is so faithful, he still will bring good into your life. But I tell you what, it goes a lot smoother if you're willing to let him work. And so the first few verses are just this description of of Jerusalem's situation, uh, a vivid picture of what sin looks like and what sin does in our lives. These last few verses are the psalmist's cry for forgiveness and for protection, uh, starting in verse 8. Oh, do not remember former iniquities against us. Let your tender mercies come speedily to meet us, for we have been brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name, and deliver us and provide atonement for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let there be known among the nations in our sight the avenging of the blood of your servants, which has been shed. Let the groaning of the prisoner come before you according to the greatness of your power. Preserve those who are appointed to die and return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom, their reproach with which they have reproached you, O Lord. So we, your people and sheep of your pasture, will give you thanks forever. We will show forth your praise to all generations. So the psalmist here, recognizing their need for forgiveness, cries out to the Lord and says, Lord, Don't remember our iniquities. Have mercy. You're the God of our salvation. Deliver us. Provide atonement for our sins. And you know what? The Lord did that for Israel. The Lord did that for Jerusalem. See, the story of Jerusalem doesn't end there. It doesn't end with Jerusalem in a pile of smoking ruins. See, as you continue on in the story, what happens after 70 years? Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, they come back and they rebuild the walls. And they rebuild the houses, they rebuild the city, they rebuild the temple. The Lord took what was a smoldering pile of destruction and he brought restoration. And that is so good for us to remember. That's the good news, is that the Lord forgives. The Lord brings about restoration in our lives. When we're dealing with those difficult situations, the Lord blesses again. Sometimes we're in that place and we think, man, it can never be better again. But I'm telling you right now that it can be. And in Joel, God says, I will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Now, I love that verse because when a plague of locusts would come upon God's people, it was for a reason. And that reason was for discipline. And to have the locusts come in and destroy your crops was a huge tragedy. But what the Lord is saying is even when there's devastation in your own life that you have brought on yourself in my goodness, in my grace, in my mercy, in my faithfulness, I can restore those years that have been lost 
to foolishness and disobedience. The Lord does it over and over again in Scripture. From the very beginning, we see that he covered the nakedness of Adam and Eve with Moses, or pardon me, with Abraham. Abraham, remember, he was faithless. He tried to do things in his own effort, in his own energies, but the Lord was still faithful. Uh, Moses, he ran from the Lord. Remember, after he killed the Egyptian, he ran and spent 40 years on the backside of the desert, but he could not run from God's plan for his life. David blew it big time, but there was nothing that could separate him from the love of God. We see it played out in the life of Israel over and over again. In the wilderness between Egypt and the promised land, boy, they didn't believe. And yet the Lord still delivered them safely to the promised land. Uh, when they were in the promised land, the story that we're dealing with, they gave themselves over to idolatry. And the Lord allowed the Assyrians to come in and take away the northern ten tribes and Babylon to come in and take Judah away. But he rebuilt with Ezra and Zerubbabel and, and Nehemiah again. Israel would reject the Messiah there in the New Testament. And as a result, again, Jerusalem would be laid waste by the Romans this time. The Jews would be dispersed through all of the world. And you say, wow, that was pretty much it. But it wasn't. Because in 1947, what happened? Israel became a nation again. And they were gathered together. And now Jerusalem is the capital of Israel again. Huge, I mean, huge point of controversy going on there. But they still reject Jesus. And they again will be surrounded by their enemies. In the future. And Jesus will come and he will deliver them. He will rescue them. See, God is faithful even when we are faithless. When we see God's faithfulness to Israel, we say, oh, why should we care? What difference does it even make if we sit here in this room thousands of years later and say, yippee, skippy, that's great. God was faithful to Israel. It reminds us that God is faithful to us, to me. To you, when I look at my life, and the Lord doesn't owe me anything. When I've been faithless in my life, the Lord has stuck by my side. I say, wow, Lord, you are so faithful. Great is your faithfulness to me, oh God. What a wonderful song. How fitting. I love it when the Lord does that. I never talk with people who lead worship, by the way. So when they sing a song that is just spot on, it's because the Holy Spirit did that. And I love it. It's so true to see that. Great is your faithfulness. I'm so glad for God's faithfulness. The Lord forgave again and again and again because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. The Lord is ready to forgive. Psalm 86 tells us, for you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. He is ready to forgive. It's available if we're willing to call out on his name. 1 John 1, 9 tells us, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so why? If I'm such a faithless individual, and you are too, don't let yourself off the hook so easy. Why is it that God is so faithful? Why does God forgive us? Why did God send his only son to die a brutal death on a cross to shed his blood to forgive me of my sins? Why? Because he's good. Because he's merciful. Because he's gracious. It's for his goodness. 
See, it's not because you're a good person or I'm a good person. It's not because they turned over a new leaf or because they gave enough charitable contributions or because they were baptized. It's because God is merciful. Mercy, not getting what we deserve. What we deserve for sin is death. He spared us of that. Grace, getting what you don't deserve. That is heaven, forgiveness, his love. See, we're forgiven because God loves us, because he's merciful, because he's gracious, because Jesus died on the cross for us. It's only by the blood of Christ that we can have our sins cleansed. And God is ready and willing to forgive. And so what should our response be? First of all, our response should be yes. We should go to the Lord and say, forgive me. Forgive me. It is available this morning. And if you have never had your sins forgiven, if you're in this place, and and this is all just a bunch of Christian mumbo jumbo, and you can't wait to leave, hear me out for the next 30 seconds. And the wages of sin is death, and you will give an account. And you can either stand before the Lord someday based upon your own merit, which is not good enough, or you can stand before the judge, God, based upon Jesus' merit. Because that's what the Bible says, while we were yet sinning, he died for us. That he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And I would encourage you this morning to go before the Lord, to acknowledge your need for forgiveness. Lord, I'm a sinner. I've blown it. But I recognize your willingness to forgive And so I ask, God, that you would forgive me. I believe your son came to this earth, that he was God, that he took my sin upon himself on the cross, that he died in my place, that he was buried, and that he rose from the grave three days later. If you confess with your heart, or if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is God and that God rose him from the grave, then you'll be saved. And that's it. And so I want to encourage you that. But our response as Christians is what? It says, we are your people. That's what the psalmist says at the end. We are your people. When he says, we are your people, that means we belong to him. Our response to God's goodness should be surrender. To walk in obedience. To say, Lord, my life is yours. Do with it what you see fit. The psalmist says, we are the sheep of your pasture. Here's the thing about sheep. Sheep are not known for their, their wits. They're not known for their cunning ability to fight or uh, sheep are known really for their for their stupidity for their propensity to wander off and get into trouble for their helplessness and we acknowledge those things lord i recognize my propensity to wander off into trouble maybe you guys have seen the viral video of a farmer he's like trenching to lay some water pipes or something in there. And there's this big old fat fluffy sheep stuck right in the trench. And you know, the video is only a couple seconds long and it shows him, ah, he does everything he can to finally get that sheep out of there. And immediately the sheep goes right back in the hole. I'm like, oh Lord, that is so me. We recognize our need. We recognize our helplessness. Thirdly, we recognize his goodness because if we're the sheep of his pasture, that means he's our good shepherd and he is our great shepherd. He leads us beside still waters. He leads us to green pastures for his name's sake. He cares for us and he's gonna see us through. He's gonna complete the good work that he began in you. 
because he's our good shepherd, that we would be thankful, that we would remember, Lord, I was bound for destruction and now I'm bound for glory. That should cause thankfulness and gratitude to well up in our hearts every second of every day. And lastly, that we would praise him. Man, in song, but not just in song, but with our lives. Lord, with our actions, that we would just want to shout from the rooftops the goodness of Jesus. And so what a wonderful psalm. It starts off sort of gruesome, but it's a reminder of what sin actually looks like in our lives. It brings carnage and destruction. But thank God, he is willing to forgive. He's faithful when we're faithless. Where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And I want to touch on that real quick, and I know I'm going a little late, but, you know, if where sin abounds, grace abounds more, why not just live it up? Why not just sin to the hilt and be like, sweet, Jesus forgave me for that. Jesus forgave me for that. Jesus, for, I'm just going to sin all the live long day, and it's going to be great because I'm forgiven. Ask Jerusalem how that went. See, because you're forgiven, but consequences are real. And so, wow, thank you, Lord, that you forgive us, that you restore us. He really is good. And I pray that we would be those who have hearts that are overflowing with gratitude and praise, that we would remember what the Lord has done for us. And that's exactly what we get to do this morning. As Jessica comes up and leads us in a song or two to close out, we get to go to the table of communion and we get to hold some very tangible things and say, Lord, I remember. And there's just something special about coming to the table, and I pray that it never becomes routine for any of us. That we'd never just kind of chomp down the biscuit and slurp down the juice and say, Woo, all right, let's go. I'm ready for lunch. That we would stop and that we'd contemplate. That's what Jesus said. I want you to remember what I've done for you. And as you take in the cracker, as you take in the juice, and take in those promises again, not a single one of us deserve to walk up here and sup with the king but we've been invited because our sin has been dealt with. And that's a wonderful thing to rejoice in this morning. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit siskiyouchristianfellowship.com.